Heroes Behind Headlines is pleased to have Duncan as our sponsor for this episode. Duncan is throwing a 101st birthday party for John Schott today, Monday, July 3rd, at their store in Syracuse, New York. Stop by if you're in the neighborhood. There will be jelly donuts aplenty. John's actual birthday is the 4th of July, and there will be a parade in his honor. So join us, John and Duncan, in Syracuse, New York, as we celebrate our nation's birthday. Thanks, Duncan. One thing I was afraid but at that time, if you were an airman, you were killed. I mean, you were decapitated or something. The you know? Japanese would just kill them. Yeah, so uh, I was thinking about that, and I was trying to really make my way. But to tell you the truth, I wasn't terrified, but that was on my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. And for three days, I, went and I, I was really hungry. I finally come on a little, little farm, and they had cabbages growing there. So, geez, I went over there, I grabbed a, a head of cabbage, and I went, I went to a place that had some trees around it, and I was eating that, and next thing I hear click of the bolts of a rifle, and there were two guys, bayonets. So that's when I was taken prisoner. Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Today, on the eve of July 4th, We're excited to continue a series of interviews with World War II veterans. These historic interviews were conducted by Joe Massinio over the past decade as part of the Veterans History Project. Today's subject is John Schott, a great patriot whose love of his country still burns strong on the eve of his 101st birthday. In two days, on July 4th, John Schott will be 101 years old. During World War II, John served in the Pacific as a radio operator and rear gunner on B-25 bombers. On May 5, 1945, the plane John was flying in was shot down over the Japanese-controlled island of Formosa, present-day Taiwan. He was the only man on his air crew to survive. After three days living on his own, he was captured by Japanese troops and spent the rest of the war in one of 14 Japanese POW camps on the island. 430 other Allied prisoners in those camps died. John survived. It's a great honor for us to share John Schott's harrowing story on the eve of his 101st birthday. He's our hero behind the headlines. Good morning. We're here today with the Veterans History Project to interview Mr. Schott in North Syracuse, New York. Could you tell us your name, your full name, middle initial for the record? 
John Schott, no middle initial. Okay, and what was your date of birth? July 4, 1922. Okay, um, where were you born? Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. And just tell us a little bit about your parents. Were your parents uh, born here or did, you, did they immigrate? My father immigrated. My mother was born in New York State, in Cohoes, New York. But we're all Ukrainians. And your father was an immigrant? Yeah. Okay. What was your dad's occupation? He worked in the steel mills, Jones and Lachlan Steel Mill in Aliquippa. Mm-hmm. What was the name of your wife? Maiden name? Yeah, sure. Her first name and maiden name. Well, well her first name was Helen. C, initial, and married to me is shot. And uh, she was in the service too in World War II. She was in the Coast Guard and she was a draftswoman. She uh, was based mostly in uh, Washington, D.C. Interesting. There wasn't a lot of women that were in the service at that time, but yeah, interesting. Um, what are the names of your kids? Well, my oldest daughter, her name is Linda. Then my son, Michael. I had a son that passed away after three days of birth. And my youngest daughter is uh, Lois. Okay, very good. Let's let's fast forward now to the time the, that you uh, first heard about. What were you doing when you heard about Pearl Harbor? What what was going on in your life, and what were you thinking? I know exactly what I was doing. I was coming from a movie theater, and they were outside the the paper boys were calling extra, extra, and Pearl Harbor and everything else. And uh, I just. You were kind of young I, at the time. I don't know what I thought. You know, I just, yeah. uh, I knew there was, I was coming from a movie theater. Yeah, okay. What was the mood of the community after that day? What, tell us a little bit. Were you, what people were saying and doing? Well, they were talking about the war, and they were mostly mad at the Japs for uh, a sneak attack. Mm -hmm. You know, they were troubled. And they were they were mad. Yeah. Okay. So you, did you? Um, when did you enter the service? Late January of nineteen forty-three, and I was discharged in June of forty-six. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you first entered, which uh, branch of the service did you enter? Well, I was inducted into Fort Meade, Maryland. Well, I was inducted in Pittsburgh, and I went to Fort Meade, Maryland, got my shots, clothing, and I was in the infantry. I was sent to infantry basic training in Camp Robinson, Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas. Can you tell us a little bit about basic training? Um, how'd it go for you? <laughs> That took me by surprise. I know the second day we were there, it was raining like mad, and I figured where we were going to be, sleep in. That wasn't true. Yeah, you put on your ponchos and you went out. So I had uh, eight weeks of basic training. 
See, I went there in February. I got out of there in April. And I was assigned to back to Fort Meade, Maryland. They were forming the 76th Infantry Division. And I was there. I was a BAR gunner. And the BAR stands for? Browning Automatic Rifle. Okay. And, uh, and, and they needed the men in the Air Corps. So I, took a, I went to Baltimore, took an Air Corps test. I passed it, and I was then in the Air Corps. They sent me to Air Corps basic training to Greensboro, North Carolina. Now I already had basic training, so the one in the Air Corps was very easy for me. Mm -hmm. So when did you actually start your um, the training for to become a part of the Air Crew? Did they did you know which function you would be in the Air Crew when you started, or did they no. tell us about the training for the Air Air well, specifically? First, first of all, they graded you and everything else, and uh, I went I went there with the intention of being a pilot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you took some tests and everything. And then they sent me to a college for six months. It's called a College Training Detachment. And we took a course for six months. We took physics, drafting, science. And we, a six-month course is supposed to be the equivalent to a two-year college course. Where, what, where was the college? Uh, Lynchburg College in Lynchburg, Virginia, mm -hmm. and uh, that was that was a lot of hazing there. I mean, you know, you have to when you walked across the courtyard, you had to hold your pants like this and shuffle, and the upperclassmen would stop you, and I mean, it made you feel like uh, I don't know. Uh, being girlish, you know. But then I, I was supposed to be disciplined. I don't know. But uh, I enjoyed that. Like I said, we had, that was a tough deal. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so you've got the six months training. At what point did they say you're going to have this job on the plane? What was that? Well, so after you that, started as a pilot, but then. No, after that, we were sent to <clears throat> Nashville, Tennessee. They took tests for everything else, and it, I didn't make the pilot deal. Mm -hmm. But they thought I'd be best qualified as a radio operator. So uh, from Nashville, I went to uh, Scottville, Illinois, for radio training, and I was there uh, well, roughly about three, four months. Now, the, the radios on the planes, did you have to learn Morse code? As uh, well, that's what I was in radio school in Scotia, Illinois. They taught you the Morse code mm -hmm. and everything else. I come out of that pretty good. Went to Yuma, Arizona for gunnery training. So tell us how they trained you to use the gun. These were 50 caliber? What was the 50 caliber, yeah. yeah. And, uh, well, the gunnery training there was uh, in a B-17 for one thing. You have to put on heavy clothing, which I didn't like. You have to have to carry a, a gas tank with you, a small one. If you ran out of gas, you have to go to 
a main tank, which was in the middle of the airplane, and fill up and come back. And I didn't care for that because it was hot when you were getting in. And when you came out with, with all that clothing on you, I didn't, I didn't like that at all. And that was because it was cold at, at altitude? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got 30,000 feet. And the planes were not pressurized? No. No. And uh, the main training was they had a, a U-shaped road. And every so often they had a, a little house that had a... It threw out what you call it. Uh, Some type of target? Yeah, a target. What, what do you call those? Uh, skeet? Skeet, clay, yeah. yeah clay, skeet. Uh, yeah, and I was one of the things there. They had a big pile of skeet, and when a truck came by, a man was on it. There was training, and he had a skeet, uh, a shotgun. And when he, a truck came to a certain place, you were supposed to pull the handle and send the skeet up. So it was different places all around the circle, and. Uh, my biggest scare was, and even to this day, I'm afraid of snakes. I reached for a skate, and I heard a, a rattle. I didn't think anything of it, shooting the skates. The pilot was going down, and I kept hearing this rattle. So when the pilot was down, I turned around and looked like this. There was this rattlesnake, the head of it. It was a big one. I would say about that far away, and it froze me. And I got up, opened the door, and I ran out, and whistles were blowing and everything else, and the lieutenant came over to me and started chewing me out, told me I could be killed. I said, I don't care. I'd rather be killed. I said, there's a big snake in there. And he went in there and shot it, and <laughs> but I would never go in there. Yeah. Throw a skate. I'm scared of snakes now, even a garden snake. Hmm. So, and from there, I got to know a sergeant there, and he told me I was assigned to B 17s. I said, Oh, gee, sergeant. I said, I don't like B 17s. I says, Couldn't I get in a, a medium bomber or something like that? He said, Well, I got B 25 if you'd like to go there. I said, I'll take that. So uh, that's how I got into the B-25s. The B-25 Mitchell bomber was a medium bomber first put into service in 1941. A safe and durable dual-engine aircraft, it was capable of carrying a payload of 2,400 pounds over 1,200 miles at a speed of 300 miles per hour. Because of its efficiency, it was used by many Allied air forces. 10,000 B-25s were built and served in every theater of World War II. One famous B-25C used by the 321st Bomb Group was nicknamed Patches because its crew chief painted all the aircraft's flak hole patches with bright yellow zinc chromate primer. By the end of the war, Patches had completed over 300 missions, had been belly landed six times, and had over 400 patch holds. 
way they picked the crews was a pilot would go to a circle of co-pilots and talk to them, and he'd pick one out. Then he'd go over to the navigator's circle, ask questions there, and pick one out. Then a radio operator and armor gunner mm -hmm. and uh, the engineer gunner. We were going to fly across the seas to New Guinea. The engineer gunner and the tail gunner went to Seattle and they went to New Guinea. And on my plane, there was just uh, four of us mm -hmm. pilot, co pilot, navigator, and myself. So and they, because we, they didn't have as much room, kind of thinking no, about No, it wasn't weight. that. Uh, like I say, he put on his extra fuel and everything. We were going to fly from California to the yeah. Hawaii. That, that took us almost 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So it was, like I said, they needed a radio operator just in case anything happened, you know, sure. even and a navigator. But anyway, from there, I don't know, I guess we were there for about a week. And I don't know the reason why we were there that long. From there, we flew to Christmas Isle, stayed there for a day, then to Johnson Island, Tarawa, Guadalcanal, then Finchhaven, New Guinea. And from New Guinea, we flew across from the east side to the west side to Biak, New Guinea, and delivered our plane. And then, we, then I came back to Nadzab, which is a valley in the middle of uh, New Guinea, for training, which is a lot different than the training in the United States. Tell us about the training. There, there we treetop flying, used to fly very low. In fact, in the first training mission, we had a, a real a little guy was a pilot. He's going to train us. It's called skip bombing. I had a big 500 pound bomb. You go along, you'd release it, and you'd veer off, and it would hit a, a log barracks, you know, mm -hmm. uh, training. And I'm sitting there in the waist, nothing. And look, and I see these weed, long reeds going by the window. What the hell? I figured we were crashing, but uh, nobody hollers. I hollered them. This is this is training. Nothing is wrong. This and that. Okay. So For, he was at treetop level then, obviously. Yeah, it, it was treetop. We flew very low. Mm -hmm. Is that the way the Mitchell? That was the the method of operation of a Mitchell typically, or that just that? Uh, that was a. The train that they did over there, Ed Mitchell was the best airplane. That was a great airplane. Tell us about that airplane. I want to hear in detail about the plane and why you liked it. Oh, geez, that, I mean, that airplane, you know what a B-24 is? Yes. Well, this is a miniature B-24. It had twin stabilizers, two engines. I get in that airplane and they started up there. You could hear the pop hole in the cracking of the engines and everything else. I just felt, that made me feel great, you know, secure and everything else. 
That would that airplane was that was a great airplane, and it could carry a big load, carry 200, 500 pound bombs, four 500 pound bombs, or a, a bunch of uh, we used to call them parafrags, but we used to carry mostly napalm bombs, which was everything was built out of bamboo in that, that place, Indochina, Formosa, Philippines. And we dropped these napalm bombs. It's like, once they hit, it's like tar. They would spread all over the place and it was burning. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and there's a few times we flew a Japanese airport, Air Force, airport, dropping parafrag bombs, which was bombs were on a parachute. And they had a grenade on them, which was about the size of a pineapple. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that was when you drop it, it would explode, and the shrapnel would go into the motors of the airplanes, you know, the demolished airplanes on the ground. But uh, so did they explode above ground? Oh yeah. So was there an altitude they were sensor? Low. They had a parachute. Mm -hmm. It's a timing device of some kind. But anyway. So you had to get out of there, obviously, well, when you dropped you, that. You, well, that wasn't as bad because you were flying by it. I mean, the parachutes would float down, you know, so you were out of the way. Yeah. But uh, most of the time, it was bombing railroad yards. So was it always low-level stuff? Oh, yeah, always. So you I mean, were up close and personal. Huh? You were you were pretty close to what was going on when you're in the Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we flew so low. I mean, you can see the railroad tracks. In fact, I, can, I still remember seeing this little cart drawn by a woman and a little kid with a water buffalo. I was a 5th Air Force, 345th Bomb Group, 500 Bomb Squadron, B-25. When, when the Mitchell went up, did it, did it go in groups of a certain number of planes? Was it solo? How did it tell us the, the way that operated? Well... What was a typical you know, had, mission? You had three in a group. You had about 12 with flying in a formation. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't know, it was a squadron, but, but it's a, it was a group. Yeah. And you, you flew along. They only had one navigator. For the whole uh, yeah. group? Yeah, the one would serve as a navigator. Everybody follows on that. And uh, the tail gunner mostly was left out because this was in 45. So um, there, there wasn't very much of a Japanese Air Force. Some, but not very much. So on, on our missions, and you didn't sit, fly with your same pilot, it, it was mixed. They would sign a pilot, they would sign a radio operator here. Or, mm -hmm. and, uh, so you said you were a radio operator, but you also served as a gunner, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was your alternate duty? Yeah, radio operator flying to the target and out of the target. But once you're over a target, then you became a gunner. My last mission was on May 17, 1945. 
We were flying in a valley, I know that. Because hills on either side of us, I could see, uh, there had to be caves, I could see muzzle flashes. Shooting at you? From, from guns, you know. And uh, I still don't know whether we were shot down or whether we hit something. I'm more than likely we were shot down. But we were evasive action, flying up and down, you know. And uh, we were shot down. I came to, well, I, before that, I was in a tail position. I was going to fly to a tail gunner. And uh, we were flying along. The next thing I know, when I woke up, Flak helmet cracked and cut my ear over here. And I had pain in my side. They say later on I had four broken ribs. And uh, I don't know who told me that, but it says I had a, a kidney that was dislodged. I mean, it wasn't torn, but it was dislodged from where it was supposed to be. I don't know. But uh, it was... It was a rainy day. It was raining at the time. And when I got up, I looked. The tail broke off from the rest of the airplane. And the rest of the airplane was a big pile of junk about a quarter of a mile away, maybe a lot further, I don't know. But I got up and I walked over there, and it's, nobody could have been alive in there. What was the terrain like? It was uh, uh, trees or open field? Or... It was an open field. Yeah, open field. The bomber John Schott was riding in crashed on the island of Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, and an important strategic target in the Battle of the Pacific for two reasons. One, the island was a necessary stepping stone to any attack on the China coast, and two, seizing the island would sever Japanese communications to the south. The air battle for Formosa was actually started months before John Schott was captured in October 1944, when U.S. air carrier groups launched a large-scale coordinated attack on Japanese land-based air forces. The battle continued with a pattern of U.S. air raids on Japanese military installations during the day, and Japanese air raids against U.S. ships at night. I escaped for three days. I was heading toward the mountains on the eastern part of Formosa. I had a backpack, a small one, and a Chinese market, and they said that in the backpack, if you can get to the Aborigines in the mountains, the backpack has writing on it that, you know, take care of me, you'd be rewarded. And they had some Chinese money in there too. So I was making my way uh, east. And the only way I could do that was see where the sun came up, you know, and I would go the opposite way. I mean, where I'd go towards the, where the sun came up. And I, for three days, I was high in a, in a ditch or someplace that had a lot of stuff around you know bushes. What, what's going through your mind when that do you actually remember the the, the, the oh, plane yeah. crashing or you said you just woke up I, and, I don't remember the plane crashing yeah. 
I remember waking up. After it happened? After it happened. What's going through your mind in that three-day period when you're... I, I, don't, I don't know. For one, one thing, I was afraid. But at that time, if you were an airman, you were killed. I mean, you were decapitated or something. The you Japanese know. would just kill them. Yeah, so uh, I was thinking about that, and I was trying to really make my way. But to tell you the truth, I wasn't terrified. But that was on my mind, you know? Mm -hmm. And for three days, I went and I, I was really hungry. I finally come on a little, little farm and they had cabbages growing there. So, geez, I went over there, I grabbed a head of cabbage and I went, I went to a place that had some trees around it. And I was eating that and next thing I hear, click of the bolts of a rifle and there were two guys bayonets so that's when i was taken prisoner what island were you on formosa formosa okay. it's taiwan now mm -hmm. they captured me and i figured i was i was a goner i figured i was gonna be killed but they uh took me in a room and were questioning me. High-ranking officer, they, they, they weren't any bigger than this. If I stood up, I mean, I was really tall compared to them, you know? But they were high-ranking officers. The one guy was questioning me, but the colonel, and they asked me where I came from, and I says, I gave him the old airport. I really, my last place that I flew from was Clarkville, Manila, in the Philippines. And before that, I trained, uh, did some bombing from San Marcelino. So I told him I was from San Marcelino. And he wrote that down, and they wanted me to draw a picture of it. Jesus, uh, I got, I just drew a runway and some old, some airplanes are on either side of the runway. I said, this is all we had. I asked him some more questions, but they all carried a, I think it looked like a big whisk broom. Had a handle about that long. And I was slivers of bamboo, I would say about quarter inch slivers, all tied together. So it looked like a, a broom, a whisk broom, you know? Mm -hmm. And you say something that, Hit you on the back with that, and boy, that stung, that cut and everything else. But when they caught me, they took all my clothes off me. I got questioned there. Then uh, the second day, they questioned me, and I couldn't give them any more answers, except the name, rank, and serial number, you know. And the uh, time I was in San Marcelino, and, uh, it took me out, a circular pathway. In the middle was a, like a, a grass area. When I come out and walk up this crash, up this pathway, there were four soldiers laying on their stomach. They had rifles. I forgot, that, that didn't look good to me, you know? 
They marched me to the top of this pathway, and there was a brick wall behind her. They put my back against the wall and put a blindfold on me. I, I was scared. And I was moaning, you know. I wasn't crying, but I was, I was moaning. And the guy gives some kind of command. I could hear the click of the bolts. And he fired, I guess it's, I guess they said fire, I don't know. And I heard a click, but they were on uh, uh, empty. Mm -hmm. There were no bullets. They took off my blindfold and they, they, I guess they wanted to scare me pretty good. They did. And a little while later, I was put on a train. It was crowded. I was standing up in the aisle with soldiers on the other side of me and the civilians there would slap you every so often, you know? So you were the only um, American on the train? Yeah. It drove me to the capital city, which is Taipei, and put me in solitary confinement. I'll say it was a room maybe about six by eight, something like that, with sandy walls and a real thick door. And they had a little bars in there where you could talk to somebody outside, you know. And they had a window up there with bars. But uh, I think there was, I don't know, I would say maybe about 10 or 12 at the most people in solitary there. And the first room I was in, they were bombed every morning. B-24s would come over and bomb the railroad yards around there. And boys, those bombs coming down sound like, like an express train coming, you know? Uh, you could hear them. You hear the pounding of the ACK-ACK guns from the, the Japs are real close. My ceiling fell down, but I was, I didn't get hurt because I was underneath, underneath the door. And the ceiling fell in, and they come in there, and they really beat me, but good, like it was my fault. I, I, I had blood all over me. And uh, they moved me to another cell, and I was told an Englishman who was in a cell across the hall escaped and was trying to get away, and they caught him and they killed him. So uh, I was moved to another cell. We got a rice ball about the size of a tennis ball, and that was it. During the course of the Second World War, Japanese Imperial Armed Forces captured almost 140,000 Allied soldiers during the fighting in the Pacific and Southeast Asian theaters. In total, they opened at least 130 camps to house Allied prisoners. The conditions in the camps were generally deplorable. 
Clothed in rags, allied POWs like John were forced to subsist on a diet of sometimes as little as 600 calories per day, resulting in widespread malnourishment and critical levels of starvation. Due to the mass starvation, a general lack of available medical treatment, and rampant abuse, U.S. POWs faced bleak prospects for survival. According to the post-war Tokyo Tribunal, the death rate for Western prisoners was 27.1% across Japanese POW camps, a rate more than seven times higher than of prisoners of war under either Nazi Germany or fascist Italy. Every once in a while, they would throw a little bit of sweet potatoes in there. But I didn't blame them for that because they, they had to have a shortage of food. I mean, they didn't have much shipping coming around anymore because we took care of all their shipping. So uh, I didn't hate them for that. The guards were mean. They'd poke you with a rifle. I had one commander they changed every week for a commander at a camp. I had one guy that was a good guy. You had a bucket there where you'd go to the john that they'd untie you, you know. You go to the john and you go to empty it outside. So this guy was a good guy. He wanted to know some things how you would say something in American, you know. And he would tell me in Japanese, like tamango is eggs, you know, and moshi moshi and all that stuff. He'd roll up a cigarette and give me, and I used to be a smoker. And that was so nice, smoking a cigarette and talking to him for a while, you know. He was the only good guy. Later on, I found out there was, I heard a, a guy about oh, two weeks after me, Caddy Corner in a cell, I heard him saying to the officer that he was a, a radio operator on B-25. So uh, when it was all quiet, there was nobody. The guard would walk down. When he was at the end of the hall, I would tap a message out in Morse code, you know? And he'd answer me back, and he was in the 345th Bomb Group 2, but a different squadron. And he was from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So we would send messages to each other, you know. Did you know what his name was? Did he? Yeah, Calvin Beck. I'll never forget that. He was from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I, I got a. I got a book here written by a guy named Hickey, Warpath Across the Pacific. I got a first edition on that, and uh, he was on the phone with me for about three or four hours. He was calling from Colorado, and I gave him a lot of information, and he wrote, wrote his book, and he sent me a first edition with his name on it. So. Uh, my name's in there, about four or five different pages and different things. But going back to Taipei, 
being in solitary confinement, I was getting lice. Your hands were tied, you couldn't scratch. So I would go up against the wall, what I say, sandy one, and rub, you know? But my hair and head and everything else, I, I couldn't scratch. And my back was, would be bleeding from that, but nothing you could do about that. How did that experience um, affect your faith? Did you pray at all during that time? Oh, yeah. yeah. All the time. And, you know, I was so hungry. I don't forget, I, I saw a little lizard, like from here to the lamp on the floor. If I was free, good thing I wasn't. Because if I was free, if I could have caught that thing, I would have ate it. Mm. That's how hungry I was. All I, all I could think was cold milk. That's my mother. My mother's cooking like stuffed cabbage and and jelly donuts and cold milk. But uh. Did your family know what had happened to you, or do they think you had died I, I, in the crash? I don't know. Don't know. No, because the only thing I remember for that. It was one day I looked in the corner and everybody said, thinks it was just a mirage or nothing. My father was standing there. He had a cue stick in his hand and he was chalking up. He was, he was a good pool player in, in the Ukrainian club there. He was chalking up. And I said, oh, what do you say, Tat? We used to call him Tato. He says, I know you're scared talking to me in Ukrainian. He said, but don't be. He says, you'll be home for Christmas. And he went away. He, it was not a mirage. He was there. So, and he was right. I got released in September and I was home for Christmas. The only thing they told me that Roosevelt died, the president. Well, I didn't know whether to believe them or not. It, it was a guard that told me that. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't think anything about that. The atom bomb, I didn't know anything about that until after. But anyway, when that happened, apparently the Japanese were surrendering, surrendering in August. And... uh all of a sudden, everybody was nice to everybody, you know. And he took us out of there, put us in a truck, and took us to a main prison yard where they had the soldiers from Bataan, the Philippines. Mm -hmm. They had English soldiers there from Singapore. So it's a big thing. And the things I saw, I mean, those guys from Bataan, Death March, eh? They must have suffered like mad. They were, you could see bones, you know, or through the skin and everything else. And I was there and I started getting what they call berry, berry. My legs started to swell up. And they had an English colonel there was a doctor. 
and he told me there was a lack of, lack of proteins, meat and everything else. Well, how did your weight, what happened to your weight oh, while you were in captivity? When I come back to the Philippines, I weighed 93 pounds. How much were you before you? 147. So if any women want a good diet. That's the hard way. Oh, it's, boy, I, I tell you, you don't know what starvation is. Every Sunday I bring food there for the food pantry for people. Because I know what they is when they starve. I give good money to the rescue mission and Salvation Army for their Easter dinners and Thanksgiving dinners, Christmas dinners. And it just makes you... It's so sad to see all these people eating at a table and I don't know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. When I was in the Philippines, go to breakfast, I'd come out, you see little kids, I used to have little cans, lard, I know when I was a kid, you'd go to the store, they used to have lard in there, if you wanted to buy lard, you know, they scoop it out and put it in a... These kids would be there with these little buckets and guys would dump, they'd dump their coffee and what little eggs they had in the same bucket. You know, it's... I used to feel so damn sorry. I'd go around and I'd get more eggs, it was powdered eggs, and everything, you know. And I'd come back and they only had the one thing there in to dump it in there and all that is mixed up. I just made you sick. But uh, when you're hungry, you'll eat any, anything that's edible, you know? And when I got on that ship, I ate like I had never ate before. It's, they had steak for breakfast. I couldn't believe that. So I went on a, a carrier, got deliced, come off of it, and the guy says, I'm gonna put you on a, a DE to the Philippines. I said, what's a DE? Destroyer escort. It's a small destroyer, but it was fast. And I got on that, and that plane, that, that shit was so clean, Cement floors painted red, you know. They took me around the engine room that was clean and everything else. And the food, oh, Jesus. I think it took us maybe a day, day and a half. I, I'm just guessing to get to the Philippines. And there I was processed and everything else on a ship to San Francisco. I think it took us 15, 15 days. We only stopped once at Anna Weetok for fueling. Other than that, we got uh, to Frisco. What did you think when you saw the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time? Well, you don't know how anybody feels getting back to the States. Damn it, this is the greatest country in the world.
I, I hear the Star Spangled Banner now and I get tears in my eyes. It's just, it's a great country. So, you see the flag and all that. Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, we come in here. Was, went to Frisco, and I went to Letterman General General Hospital in Frisco for about two weeks, and then they, oops, then they, depending on where you lived and everything else, you know, and I guess for the POWs. I was assigned to a hospital in uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, in Greenbrier. I used to be a famous spa mm -hmm. before the war started. And I was in a room, a beautiful room, with another person. On the back of the door, they had a thing there, $1,000 per night. Now you you talking about the forties, you 40s, know? Yeah. Hell, I was working for forty-two cents an hour, a thousand dollars a night. You know, it had to be very rich people. Yeah, to stay there. We ate in a dining room, a huge dining room, big chandeliers and everything else. Got waited on, treated like a king. How long did you get to stay there? I stayed there from uh, October. June. And what gets me in World War II, yes, yeah, I'm like over 10 million people in the service. Everybody came back. Everything was organized, this and that. You had the GI Bill. You know, you go to school and all that stuff like that. Now, yeah, 500,000 people in the Army has big problems with the VA and there's problems here. They don't have housing, they don't have... It was so disorganized now, and yet I can't believe how great it was, everything was during World War II. My father passed away before I went into service. He, uh, he passed away when I was 17. back to see my mother. Tell us about the reunion. How'd she, and she, uh, how'd she handle that when she saw uh, you for the uh, first time? It's, uh, it's, uh, I had a hell of a time when I came home. After I got discharged, I'd eat and I'd go to my room. The shades would be down, it'd be dark. I would sit there in my mother's rocking chair, and I'd rock, and I'd just stare into space. I was just trying to figure out why the whole crew, why I was saved, and they died. I was there for a long time like that. Then I had the FBI come in, question me. Then I had to go to a psychiatrist in Pittsburgh. Why did the FBI need to talk to you? Uh, about the treatment, if I knew the guys. 
-hmm. people named it, they're going to go after prosecute and everything else, you know. And I told him, I said, I didn't know any names, but I told him there was one guy that there that I would vouch for. I mean, I would say was a friend, you know. Mm-hmm. But the, the psychiatrists and take a bus, go 20 miles to Pittsburgh, and it was just, uh, but I, I couldn't figure out why I was saved and they weren't. At what point did you um, go to work or school? What? How did you kind of get get out of that? How did I get to mode? go to work? Yeah, you you. How did you kind of break out of that uh, depression or whatever you would PTSD that you had? Well, when I got discharged in June of '46 at Fort Meade, Maryland, I was going to re-enlist because I really liked the service. But I got discharged on a Sunday, and uh, they told me that. I could go home, stay home for 30 days and re-enlist while I was home. That would still be continuous, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I got home, I forgot all about that. But when I got discharged in June, before we were were still in the States, the three non-coms, the engineer, gunner, myself, and the tail gunner, we said to each other that if anything ever happened to one or the other, We'd go see the person, family, and tell them personally what happened, you know, instead of just getting this letter or telegram. Or so, uh, my engineer Gunner, like I say, his wife, he only knew her for two weeks, and she was a, a spar. On November twenty third, nineteen forty two. Legislation passed by the U.S. Congress created a new female branch of the U.S. Coast Guard known as SPARS, a contraction of the Coast Guard motto, Semper Paratus, always ready. These female volunteers went through vigorous training and filled shore jobs in the United States, which freed Coast Guard men to serve at sea and overseas. More than 10,000 women volunteered for SPARS between 1942 and 1946, including African-American women, beginning in October 1944. I I looked at her and she was standing like over here, and her husband was over here. His name was Bill Kozak. The crew, when we were shot down, there was only one member that was my original crew, and that was Bill Kozak, a top turret gunner. Well, he got killed. So uh, from Fort Meade, I took a train down to uh, Philadelphia, that's where she lived. That's where she originally born in Scranton, but she lived in Philadelphia with her sister. And I was dumb at the time. It was five o'clock in the morning. When I took a cab from the station to the house, I should have waited till later. But anyway, I knocked on the door and this man comes down. And I told him that I was there to see uh, Helen, Helen Kozak. I told him who I was. So he hollers up the stairs and 
She comes down and we talked oh most of the morning and I was gonna leave from there, go home back to Pittsburgh. Well she was there, we talked, and I said, Well, I'm gonna go to a hotel. I said, get a little rest and I said, I'm going home. She says, You can stay here, we got a spare room upstairs. You can stay here, you know, and then go. Okay. So I slept there and I got up got up and she was well her brother in law was at work already, but her sister was there and with two little kids. So I woke up and I had breakfast and she uh just would you like to go see uh my other sister lives you know, further away. I said, yeah, I figured, well, I can always catch a train. So I went down and visited with her, and we'd come back, and I, I saw a nightclub there, and I said, Jesus, do you drink? She says, not very often. And she said, but I do have whiskey sour once in a while, and I felt like a beer. So I said, let's go in there. So we went in there, and we talked some more and they had a little, some girls singing. And we come out and we talked some more that evening and the next day I still hadn't gone home. Is there anything else as we come to the end of the interview that you'd like to um, add? Anything that we may have looked over? We can go back in time if you need to. Anything to come to mind? No. Nothing, I, uh, except I've been retired since 83. My wife and I were married 52 years. We struggled, but we made it. I wouldn't change anything, and I wouldn't even change my life. I was, I'm satisfied with my life. I enjoyed it. I did things. The only thing I got to say to people were, this is a damn great country. Sergeant John Schott served his country in the U.S. Army Air Corps from January 1943 to June 1946. He was only 22 years old when he was captured by the Japanese and thrown into a prisoner of war camp, the only survivor of a B-25 bomber shot down over Formosa. From May 17, 1945 to September 7, he suffered brutal treatment at the hands of his captors, but he never lost faith in his country, his family, or himself. Today, soon to turn 101 years old, you can still feel the emotion in John's voice when he talks about his love of the United States of America. Therefore, it's only fitting that we thank him for his decency and service just days before we celebrate our country's birthday, July 4th. It's with great gratitude that we name John Schott today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer, Ralph Pizzullo. 
Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, like, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.